To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, check us out at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Hey guys, Courtney here. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the new true crime podcast I've been binging, Morning Cup of Murder. Remember those old desk calendars that gave you a fact about what happened on that day in history? Well, Morning Cup of Murder took that concept and applied it to a true crime podcast. Every morning, listeners enjoy a true crime story that deals with that day in history. With over 750 episodes, with Morning Cup of Murder, you'll be sure to get your daily true crime fix. Subscribe today and give them a listen. That's Morning Cup of Murder, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Morning Cup of Murder, Subscribe today and give them a listen. The police car's deafening sirens pierce the quiet afternoon air. The squad car races to the police station. Two teenage twin sisters cry hysterically in the back of the patrol car. The girls just discovered their mother in a pool of cold blood, murdered. The twins are shaking uncontrollably. Hearts broken, lives shattered. The officer turns to console the girls. As he turns, he notices one of the identical twins bite herself in the arm. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 72, The Whitehead Twins. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. If you're interested in supporting the show, getting early access to weekly episodes, bonus material, ad-free episodes, merchandise, and much more, consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Before we get to the episode, I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to this week's newest patron of the show, Amy J. Thank you so much, Amy. Another great way you can help support Forensic Tales is by leaving us a positive rating with a review or telling friends and family who love true crime about us. Now, let's jump right into this week's case. Jermika Yvonne Whitehead, known as Nikki, was quite literally born behind the walls of a prison. She was born on April 18, 1975, while her mother served time in prison on drug charges. Prison is no place to raise a newborn. Nikki was raised by her grandmother, Della Frazier. But just like her mother, Nikki was a handful for her grandmother. 
Her grandmother did her best to try and keep Nikki on the right path. But when Nikki turned 17 years old, she found out she was pregnant. But she wasn't just going to be a teen mom to one baby. She was about to become a teen mom to twins. At 17 years old, Nikki found out she was expecting twin girls. Although the girl's father wasn't going to be in the picture, Nikki was ecstatic. She was excited about becoming a mom herself. She wanted to become the mother her mom never was. Even though she was young, she knew she was ready to tackle the challenges of being a young single mother. Nikki gave birth to healthy twin girls on November 27, 1993. She named her girls Jasmia Kanisha Whitehead and Tasmia Janisa Whitehead. The girls would go by Jazz and Taz. But the excitement of becoming a teen single mother wore off as soon as she brought the twins home from the hospital. Nikki realized that being 17 years old and the mother of twin girls wasn't easy. And within weeks of the twins arriving, Jazz and Taz moved in to live with Nikki's grandmother, Della, the same grandmother who raised Nikki for 18 years. At the beginning of this living arrangement, Della was given custody of Jazz and Taz. The plan was to eventually have the girls live with Nikki once she grew up a little bit and could take care of the twins. It was never the intention to have Jazz and Taz stay with Nikki's grandmother for any longer than was necessary. But when Jazz and Taz were little, Nikki was in and out of the girls' lives. She struggled between wanting to be a mother to the twins and also wanting to be a teenager. It seemed like both wasn't possible. For the first 12 years of the girls' lives, they lived with their mom's grandmother. Although Nikki initially struggled with motherhood, she knew she wanted to provide for Jazz and Taz with a better life, a life she never had. But she also knew that if she wanted to provide for the girls on her own someday, she needed to get her own life together first. Despite their rough start, Jazz and Taz were picture-perfect children, children any parent would want to raise. They were both honor roll students in school and both participated in Girl Scouts. Nikki's grandmother also enrolled the girls in dance and music classes. And by just 12 years old, Jazz and Taz had dreams of one day going to Harvard for college. By all accounts, the twins were well on their way to becoming successful teenagers and then eventually young adults. But when the girls got to high school, life started to change. In 2007, when Jazz and Taz were 13 years old, Nikki took full custody of the girls from her grandmother, Della. At first, Della wasn't too happy. Although the plan was always to have the girls live with their mother, Della thought Nikki still wasn't ready to be responsible. Over the years, she hadn't really shown much interest in their well-being. She hadn't developed any fundamental parenting skills. And when she was around Jazz and Taz, she was incredibly strict and critical of the girls. Despite the fact they were honor roll students, Nikki didn't seem to think that was good enough. Della thought it was even hypocritical of Nikki. Della remembered how difficult she was to raise, so she couldn't understand why she would be so stern and strict on the girls 
when she was so difficult herself as a kid and teenager. Despite Della's attempt to keep the girls in her custody, on paper, Nikki was the legal parent of Jazz and Taz. There wasn't anything she could do. So, Della turned the girls over to their mother in Conyers, Georgia. Soon after Jazz and Taz went to go live with Nikki, those picture-perfect girls turned. Nikki cracked down on them. She took away their cell phones if they raised their voices. She was constantly grounding them for petty behavior, making them stay in their rooms all night. She never let them see their friends. And after a few weeks of living with Nikki's discipline, the girls started to resent their mother. With this resentment came a change in behavior. The once picture-perfect kids had now become teenage nightmares. The conflict between Nikki and her daughters escalated. Nikki went from simply taking away their cell phones and grounding them to physical abuse. Jazz and Taz weren't afraid to fight back. During one of these physical altercations, Nikki called 911 on her daughters. When the police officers arrived at the house, Nikki and the girls gave them conflicting stories about what happened that day. Nikki was hysterical. She told police that Jazz and Taz jumped on her and beat her. But when the police officers spoke with Jazz and Taz, they told a completely different story. It was like night and day. Jazz and Taz said, no, we weren't attacking our mom. She was the one attacking and hitting us. So you've got Nikki telling the police her daughters attacked her, while the twins are telling the police their mom is the aggressor. Now, the police officer's first instinct, of course, is to believe Jazz and Taz. They are teenagers after all, right? Anytime there's a complaint about child abuse, officers are typically trained to take that seriously. But instead of just relying on those instincts, they notice something else while interviewing Nikki. The injuries. The police observed scratches and cuts all up and down Nikki's face, her neck, Her arms were covered. But when the police officers looked at Jazz and Taz, they saw nothing. They didn't have any scratches or cuts anywhere, in fact, on their bodies. That's strange, right? If their mom had abused Taz and Jazz, why was the mom the only one with physical cuts and scratches? Since Nikki was the only one with injuries, the police had no choice but to assume that Jazz and Taz were in fact the aggressors. This time, the twins were arrested and charged as juveniles for assaulting their mom. This incident would mark just the very beginning of a shaky relationship between Nikki and her daughters. After the incident with the police, Nikki and the twins were in and out of counseling and juvenile court. Nikki's grandmother, Della Frazier, used this as an opportunity to get the twins back in her custody. Once she learned about the girl's arrest, Della filed paperwork to get custody. She cited in her paperwork that Nikki was an unfit mother and the girls requested to live with her instead. Initially, the juvenile court agreed with Della, and she was granted temporary custody of the twins. But this arrangement didn't last long. A few weeks later, Nikki and Della were back in court arguing over custody of the twins. 
At the court hearing, Jazz and Taz begged the judge not to go back with their mom. They told the judge they wanted to stay with their great-grandma. Anytime there's a case regarding custody, a juvenile judge is always looking for ways to grant the parents custody, whether that's the mother or the father. Juvenile courts want kids to live with their parents. So in the case of Taz and Jazz, the juvenile court said, okay, I understand everyone's position here about what's best for the girls. Let's give this another shot. Taz and Jazz, you're going to go back and live with your mom for two weeks. If, after two weeks, there are still problems, we'll set another court date and discuss custody further. So, on January 5th, 2010, Nikki regained full custody of Jazz and Taz. Little did the judge know how much he'll regret his decision. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. I have to tell you about Best Fiends. It's a fun puzzle game on your mobile phone. I love it because it's the perfect break for my research for the show. The puzzles are a fun challenge, which I love. But it's also a casual game, so it doesn't stress me out, which is perfect for when I need a break from researching cases. I love that every time I open the game, there's always something new going on. I just got to level 98, and it's so much fun. If you're like me and totally over the same old puzzle game, this game is for you. The makers of Best Fiends have created a whole world right on my phone. It's got great music, is bright and colorful with great graphics, and there's a story about all those cute characters. My favorite character is Jojo the Butterfly, because who doesn't love a strong, confident leading lady? So, Join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. On January 13th, 2010, a few days after the juvenile court granted Nikki full custody of Jazz and Taz for a two-week trial period, the police were called back to the house. This time, it was the twins calling the police. Jazz and Taz called 911 in a panic. They tell the dispatcher they had just come home from school and discovered their mom, Nikki, dead in a pool of blood inside her bathtub. When the police arrive at Nikki's house, the twins are immediately taken out of the home. Not only because this is now a murder scene, but because the girls are frantic. They're hysterical. They just witnessed their mom lying in a blood-soaked bathtub. So after Jazz and Taz are brought out into the street, investigators and crime scene technicians make their way inside the home. When they get to Nikki's bedroom and discover their mother, she isn't exactly how Jazz and Taz describe her. It's worse. Inside the master bathtub, not only is Nikki lying in a pool of her own blood, she's been stabbed over 80 times. Some of the stab wounds were shallow, almost like superficial wounds, while others were so deep that one actually penetrated one of her lungs. She also had a stab wound through her jugular vein and one that severed through her spinal cord. There wasn't any part of Nikki's body spared from the knife. 
Nikki's death was a rage killing. Whoever killed her didn't just want her dead. With over 80 stab wounds, they wanted her to suffer. Now, when a victim is stabbed, in this case, 80 times, this tells investigators this is a crime of passion. Stabbing is an unusually intimate type of murder. Unlike shooting, when you shoot someone from several feet away, stabbing is personal. The offender has to get close enough to stab. Whoever killed Nikki was angry. They wanted her dead, really dead. So while investigators comb the house and bathtub for any forensic evidence, the police want to speak to Jazz and Taz. The police want to know everything, from their whereabouts before they discovered their mom's body to what happened when they arrived home. When the police try to speak with the twins, they're inconsolable. They're hysterical and can barely answer any of the detective's questions. But when the police keep questioning, they need to find out who would want Nikki dead. Jazz and Taz eventually calm down enough to tell investigators their mom, well, their mom has two boyfriends. This statement sparked a theory that maybe Nikki's death was some sort of love triangle gone wrong. Initially, this love triangle theory kind of made sense to investigators. Nikki's death appears to be a crime of passion. Crime of passion murders are committed by someone close to the victim. Maybe, just maybe, Nikki was murdered by a scorned boyfriend. A scorned boyfriend who could absolutely be a possible suspect in a case where the victim's been stabbed over 80 times. Jazz and Taz tell investigators their mom lives with a man named Robert. Robert Head is a 55-year-old truck driver who Nikki met about 10 years earlier in 2000. Although Nikki was living with her boyfriend, Robert, according to the twins, she was also dating a man named Joe. The twins say that the night before, Robert, Nikki's live-in boyfriend, overheard Nikki talking on the phone with her other boyfriend, Joe. Robert then confronted Nikki about the conversation, which, not surprisingly, ended up sparking a huge fight between them. Robert had no idea that Nikki was dating another man. Jazz and Taz told the police they didn't get involved. They stayed in their rooms and tried to tune it out and tried to not listen to the fight between their mom and Robert. Then, they went to school the next morning, came home, and that's when they discovered their mom inside the bathtub covered in blood. After providing the police their initial story, Jazz and Taz are taken to the police headquarters for further questioning. But on their way to the police station, one of the police officers notices some unusual behavior from the twins. One of their police officers looks back through his rearview window and sees that one of the girls is biting her arm. The officer says, hey, what are you doing? The twin responds and says that she bites her arm when she gets upset. But it wasn't just the bite marks. Jazz and Taz also had several other scratches and cuts on their arms and fingers. When police kept inquiring about the cuts and scratches, the twins kept coming up with a slightly different version of their story. When Jazz and Taz arrived at the police station, 
they continue to console each other. By all accounts, they're distraught over their mother's murder. At times, they can't stop crying long enough for the police to continue asking them questions. But as the night goes on, the twins' behavior gets stranger by the minute. One of the police officers at the station asked the girls if he could do anything to make this easier. He empathized with the girls who just lost their mother. But instead of saying something like, call a family friend or something similar, one of the twins asked the detective if they could watch TV, specifically if they could watch the TV show CSI. This request made the hairs on the back of the detective's neck stand up. The two girls' mother was just killed, and their only request while at the police station is to watch TV? CSI? Something wasn't right here. Something's very off about these twins. It became obvious the twins weren't showing any genuine empathy or emotion over their mother's death. Even though they were, quote, crying, the police officers never really saw any actual tears. When detectives asked Jazz and Taz to describe their mother to them, instead of saying anything nice about her, they would insult her. They described all the things their mother did wrong. Typically, of course, when someone dies, people always focus on the wonderful attributes. They had a smile that could light up any room. They were the life of the party. Not Jazz and Taz. When the police started asking them questions about Nikki, they didn't say one nice thing. While detectives stayed with Jazz and Taz at the police station, investigators were busy collecting forensic evidence back at Nikki's house. Police discovered a pair of brown boots inside of a shoebox in Taz's bedroom. The boots had a significant amount of blood on them. Next to the shoebox, investigators also found a clump of hair, which at first isn't too surprising. Finding a clump of hair inside of a home where three females live isn't a big deal. I know at my house, it's me, my fiancé, and our golden retriever puppy, Kona. So I can attest to the fact that even with just me and the dog, right, there are clumps of hair everywhere. But this wasn't just any clump of hair. The hair had been wrapped inside of a napkin and then stuffed inside of a shoe, It kind of looked like the hair had been ripped out of someone's head. It was such a large amount of hair. Now, why would there be a pair of bloody boots and a clump of hair stuffed inside a shoe inside of Taz's bedroom? Who did the hair and boots belong to? Jazz and Taz's story to the police about what happened on the day of Nikki's murder begins to fall apart. They told police they missed the bus to school earlier that morning. So instead of taking the bus like they normally do, they walked to school. They said they left the house at 7.30 to make it to school on time. But police are skeptical about their story. They grow more and more suspicious when they couldn't establish their alibi. The police obtained surveillance tape footage from a nearby gas station, a gas station the girls would have walked by on their way to school that morning. Now, this is a crucial piece of evidence that would either confirm their story or refute it. 
But when detectives watched the surveillance tapes from that morning, they never saw Jazz and Taz walking to school. They saw the twins hitching a ride from someone. Now, this might seem like a minor detail, but to investigators, this was a lie. The twins told the police they walked to school that day, but they didn't walk to school. They hitched a ride from somebody. Why would they lie about that? The police also went through the school's surveillance tapes. Luckily, many schools nowadays have cameras set up in their hallways. So investigators looked at the tapes to see if Jazz and Taz were at school that day and what time they got there. Now, and what they found out was that the twins did attend school, but the problem wasn't whether they were at school or not. It was the fact that they arrived much later than when they stated. We're talking hours late to school that day. The police confront the twins about the gas station, as well as the school surveillance tapes. They suggest that what they saw in the videos doesn't exactly match with their stories. Things aren't adding up here. As soon as Jazz and Taz realized the police were starting to question their story, they became angry. They no longer wanted to answer any of their questions about their mother or that day. By this point, investigators decide it's time to separate the twins. They need to get Taz and Jazz into their own interrogation rooms if they want any more of their story. This is something that investigators should have done right from the very beginning. Anytime there's a crime or murder and there's more than one witness, you want to separate the witnesses as soon as possible. You want them to provide their own stories or their own versions of events without having the other person influence their story. So once Taz and Jazz were separated and put into two different interrogation rooms, their stories begin to fall apart. Over several hours, the police catch the twins in one lie after the next. Nothing about what they said happened that night makes sense or corroborates with what the police already know. But just because the police suspect that Jazz and Taz are lying They don't have any solid physical or forensic evidence linking them to their mother's murder. All the evidence they have is purely circumstantial at this point. But that's all about to change. After hours of questioning following Nikki's murder, Jazz and Taz are released to their great-grandmother's custody. For the next four to five months, the twins carried out with their lives— They got their wish of going back to live with their great-grandma. They returned to school. They were now allowed to hang out with their friends with fewer restrictions, something that their mom, Nikki, rarely allowed them to do. Everything for Jazz and Taz seemed to be much better after Nikki's death. On the outside looking in, Jazz and Taz didn't look like your typical teenage girls mourning the loss of their mom. In fact, they looked quite the opposite, something that detectives took notice of. Even though police had to release Taz and Jazz, they felt pretty confident they were somehow involved in their mother's murder. But all the evidence they had was circumstantial. All the evidence they had was based on inferences. First, they looked at Nikki's murder itself. Because she had been stabbed over 80 times by her killer, this was a highly personal crime. It could even be described as a heat of passion type crime. 
Whoever killed Nikki was extremely angry with her to want to stab her 80 plus times. From a forensic psychology or criminological perspective, most heat of passion crimes are committed by someone the victim knows well. We rarely see a stranger commit a heat of passion crime where the victim is stabbed 80 plus times. So to support this theory, the police also didn't find any signs of a break-in or any signs of a sexual assault. Second, the police made inferences about Jazz and Taz's stories. Remember, the police had two separate surveillance tapes that suggested these girls might be lying. First was the surveillance tape at the gas station showing Taz and Jazz hitching a ride from someone not walking to school that day. Second, of course, was the surveillance tape videos at school showing the twins arriving at class much later than they said. Third, police knew about the domestic troubles between Nikki and her twin daughters. Police reports showed just how many times over the last couple years someone called the police to the house. Fourth, and finally, this isn't so much circumstantial as it is physical. I'm talking about the bloody pair of boots and clump of hair found in Taz's bedroom. But until the crime lab could do a DNA test on the boots to determine where the blood came from, it could be weeks before an arrest is made. While the police waited for the DNA test to come back, they turned their attention to Nikki's autopsy report. The police felt pretty confident this wasn't a stranger attack, but they needed solid evidence to officially rule this theory out. The medical examiner noted there weren't any signs of sexual assault on Nikki's body. There wasn't any semen found on her body. All of her clothes were still on. There wasn't anything from the autopsy to suggest she'd been sexually assaulted or that sexual assault was the motive behind her murder. This part of the autopsy report confirmed the police's theory that Nikki hadn't been murdered in a sexual assault gone wrong. The medical examiner also noted something else significant in his report. The examiner determined that although Nikki's wounds were severe, they were survivable if she had received medical attention sooner. If paramedics and first responders arrived at the house shortly after being attacked, she could have survived. The medical examiner believed that none of her injuries were so life-threatening that if attended to quickly, she couldn't survive. This is huge, right? I think this brings into question the entire timeline of the day someone killed Nikki. Because it calls into question what time Jazz and Taz said they left for school that day. And what time they said they came home and found their mom dead. This also means Nikki was dead for quite some time before the twins found her and called 911. Before getting the DNA test results back, police also examined photos taken of the injuries on Jazz and Taz's bodies. Remember, both girls had several cuts and scratches along their arms, hands, and fingers. And of course, we can't forget about the officer witnessing one of the twins biting her arm in the back of the patrol car. When the girls first arrived at the police station, the police took photos of the cuts, scratches, and bite marks. Taking pictures of injuries on any potential witness 
is just common practice during these types of investigations, especially when a witness has said that they had nothing to do with the murder, but then they arrive at the police station covered with cuts and bite marks. The police closely examined the photos of the bite marks. They wanted to determine whether the bite marks came from the twins themselves in the act of nervousness, as they said, or if the bite marks came from another source. So the police enlisted the help of a forensic dentist. The forensic dentist examined the bite marks found on Jazz and Taz. First, he needed to determine if the bite marks came from either of the twins as they claimed, so the police secured a search warrant for dental records on both twins. Once the forensic dentist had the dental records, he compared the records to the bite marks. He also compared the bite marks to Nikki's dental records. What he discovered turned this investigation entirely upside down. After the forensic dentist examined the bite marks on the twins, he determined that, quote, to a reasonable degree of probability, the bite on Tasmia Whitehead's left arm was placed there by her mother, end quote. This meant that while the officers saw Taz biting her own arm in the back of the patrol car wasn't because she was upset, she was trying to disguise the fact the bite mark on her arm actually came from her mother. The DNA test results on the bloody boots finally came back. The DNA test ruled out other potential suspects in Nikki's murder, including either one of Nikki's boyfriends, Robert and Joe. The blood and DNA found inside the home weren't a match to either Robert or Joe, but the DNA did match not just one person, but two. The DNA matched both Jazz and Taz. Because Jazz and Taz are identical twins, they share everything, from clothing to birthdays. They also share the same DNA. The blood found on the boots belonged to both Jazz and Taz. But what the police didn't know was whether this meant only one twin killed their mother or if both were involved. In May 2010, five months after Nikki's murder, Jazz and Taz were arrested and charged with murdering their own mother. After their arrest, the twins were quick to throw in the towel. Instead of coming up with more lies, Jazz and Taz confessed. In their confession, they said everything started with a fight with their mom. The fight started in the kitchen after Jazz and Taz both woke up late for school that day. Nikki screamed to the girls, you're late for school, you're not going to do what you want to do, you have to live by my rules. That's when the twins said that their mom began threatening to hit them with a pot from the kitchen. Jazz and Taz said they wrestled their mom down to the ground to get the pot away from her. Once they grabbed the pot, that's when Nikki reached for a knife from the knife block in the kitchen and grabbed one. Taz said she reached down to grab the pot and hit Nikki over the head with it. After being hit in the head, that's when Nikki bites Jazz on the arm. While Nikki bites down on Jazz, Taz grabs the knife and inflicts the first stab wounds on their mom. After the first stab wounds, 
the three of them continue to fight. At one point, Jazz used a medal she won as a child to choke her mom. But Nikki keeps fighting back. Stunned that their mom continues to fight back, that's when Jazz and Taz decide enough is enough. They grab the knife once more and repeatedly stab their mom, over and over again, more than 80 times. They then drag Nikki's body into the bathroom and into the bathtub. Both twins remember that when they dragged her body inside of the bathtub, she was still alive. Even after being stabbed 80 times, the twins remembered their mom talked to them as she died. She told her daughters that she hated them and that they were going to go to jail. This was the time when they could have called 911 and they could have given their mom a chance to live. But instead of calling for help, they placed her body inside of the bathtub and filled it with water. After Nikki died, Jazz and Taz said they cried. They couldn't believe what they had just done. They also said they argued about what to do next. But once they collected themselves, they started to clean up the house. During the cleanup, one of them tried to hide the blood-soaked boots inside of the closet. Then, they thought it was best to leave the house and go to school to try and establish their alibis. Jazz and Taz told investigators they expected that by the time they got home from school, that the police would already be at the house. But when they did finally arrive home, nobody was there. The police weren't there, and their mother's body was still inside of the bathtub. Seeing what they had done to their mother for a second time sent them into a panic. And that's when they decided to call 911. During their confessions, Jazz and Taz were both very remorseful. They expressed several times that they wished they didn't react that way. They wished they could have resolved their issues with their mom without violence. I think showing this type of remorse was certainly helpful for Jazz and Taz. Because in January 2014, the twins accepted a plea deal. They agreed to plead guilty to manslaughter in exchange for a 30-year prison sentence with the possibility of parole. This gives the twins a chance at a second life once released from prison. As of today, Jazz and Taz are incarcerated at separate prisons within the Georgia Department of Corrections. Both girls were eligible for parole back in 2017, and both were denied. Jazz and Taz haven't been in contact with each other since their joint confession. Identical twins share everything. Birthdays, appearance, DNA, and a single mother. However, Jazz and Taz will also share one dreadful memory. The horrific murder of their mother. Some things should never be shared. To share your thoughts on the Whitehead Twins, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Forensic Tales. Let me know what you think about the story. Also, to check out photos from the case, be sure to head to our website, ForensicTales.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. 
If you loved the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new story and a brand new case to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell. For a small monthly contribution, you can gain access to bonus content and be one of the first to listen to new episodes. Or, if you simply want to support my show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash forensictales. You can also help support the show by leaving us a positive review and telling friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., William R., David B., Sammy, Paula G., and Selena C. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or email me at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Please join me next week. We release a new episode every Monday. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.